Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books and in Indian Religions podcast, a podcast channel here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkor, and more importantly, it is my pleasure today to welcome to the podcast Dr. Stephen Lindquist, um, who is uh, Associate Professor of Religious Studies and Director of the Asian Studies at SMU and is the author of a brand new, exciting Sunni publication, The Literary Life of Yagnavalkya. Stephen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me here. Delightful. I've been an admirer of your work for some time, and we've collaborated here and there in the past, I believe. And it's, it's, it was only a matter of time until I had the pleasure of having you on the podcast. I'm glad that um, we're able, able to cover your work. Um, unlike perhaps the vast majority of the, the publications on the podcast, this is actually in my, my own subfield of sans- Sanskrit narrative. So uh, fascinating work. Um, could you tell us a little bit about I realize that you might have to read the book to answer this question, but, you know, in a cursory <laughs> manner, who, who is Yagnavalkya? Who is this dude? Well, first of all, read the book. Uh, yeah, of course, <laughs> of course. No, of course. No, well, Yagnavalkya is a figure any of us involved in Hindu studies is familiar with um, in some fashion, particularly the Yagnavalkya from a text known as the Brihadaranyaka Upanishad. And within that context, he is a central figure involved in a public debate at court, a private discussion uh, with the king, and then a private discussion um, with his wife, Um, a central figure who in another part of the text is said to be the founder of this particular school, the white Yajurveda, the Shukla Yajurveda. Um, So this figure is, is so well known Um, not the least of which because um, the Upanishads, while primarily viewed as philosophical texts, also have a series of narratives within them. And many of us in teaching Hinduism use those narratives as a way to bring students um, into the text. And Yagnavalkya is a particularly sharp-tongued individual, innovative individual um, that has a quite developed character. And what this book does then is look at Yagnavalkya's later life, where or his literary life. That is, where does he come from and where does he go to? Where was he before the Brihadaranyaka, where he seems so well developed? And then what trajectories of his literary life continue after? You know, this very, you know, part of uh, what's quite exciting about the very title of the book is the word literary, the literary life of, of Yagnavalkya. And what can you say about that? Is that is that typical? Is that uh, innovative? 
That's not typical for the early material. Um, those in epic studies, I think, will, would be more familiar with this approach, um, or perhaps also in other religious traditions, such as um, stories of the Buddha. Um, in this case, most of the work on Yagnavalkya to date, not all of it, but most of it, has been concerned with two different trajectories. One is to figure out, is he a historical individual and when? Um, the other trajectory is to take him as the central figure of philosophical th thinking, especially within Advaita Vedanta. What hasn't been done is to look at him as a literary figure. And to me, this seems to be the natural place to begin rather than um, looking at his historicity, because what we have is literally only narratives. Um, and so my mind, the, the natural place to begin before asking historical questions is to ask literary ones um, and, and to consider rather than saying, here's how we know this particular individual may have lived at this time. And these passages refer to a historical one, these passages to a, a mythological one, instead to step back and say, what we know is of a literary individual and how can we approach that with literary questions? before going to historical ones, which are, of course, important questions. Um, but I think you end up with limited purchase in making historical claims before you grapple with the literary, because that is the nature of the evidence we have. Yeah, that, I mean, that methodology very, very much resonates. And I've said in a few different places that, you know, albeit diachronically produced, typically, you know, the epics, the Puranas, the Devi Mahatmya, uh, so much attention was paid to how the patchwork quilt uh, ends up, and so, you know, before we before we pull it apart, let's pay attention to the fabric of the narrative. And and there's a uh, an edited volume coming out that McComas Taylor and I put together. Uh, we're 18 contributors, uh, various methods. Uh, it's it's in the Sanskrit epics and Puranas, but but sort of we think of it, or we uh, we think of it overarchingly as we talk about it in the intro, as as they're all united in in a literary lens and sort of taking seriously the story world and you know on the one hand there there are endologists who would who would be baffled by that approach or at least uh, you know it would be sort of um not the instinctive and yet uh for, for many particularly teaching continuing studies people are sort of stymied that one wouldn't take a literary lens to a right. story world of a text right. and it seems right. that in endology in, in particular there is there's um yeah there, there seems to be a little bit of a, a tension there between diachronic yeah, and synchronic approaches. Yeah, well, I think part of it has to do with training, um, and part of it has to do with the nature of the text. So part of it that has to do with training is those people concerned with the earliest material um, are usually trained in some fashion as philologists or linguists, um, whose concerns are uh, especially more historically oriented. The problem when it comes to the, the genres, um, I, I would put, you know, uh, taking that one group and say, not that they're really in opposition, but you can think of them that way. Take that group um, in opposition to those people who study the epics, um, where their training is equally in Sanskrit, but with different concerns. But the other is when you look at the early material, the Upanishads are, are somewhere betwixt and between, right? Because we do have narratives within them, some of them that are quite extended, such as the ones with Yang and Valkya. But prior to that, narratives are very short. Um, when they do appear, um, those people with literary concerns 
we'll maybe use them as examples here and there, but usually don't delve into the spe specifics of, of them. And so you get on the one hand, um, the textual historians, the, uh, the Indologists, classicists, on the other hand, the literary folk. And the Upanishads very often are taken to be, well, the Upanishads tend to go off in their own trajectory uh, amongst Darshan specialists or Indian philosophy. And so looking at the Upanishads for narrative, for character, for various types uh, of rhetorical strategies in the course of a narrative, um, with a couple notable exceptions and very important exceptions, but just it isn't generally done. And so you end up with this in-between both of genre and in-between um, of specializations. Now, of course, beyond the Upanishads, uh, this figure makes many uh, uh, cameo appearance, appearance throughout, throughout the ages in various genres. Say a little bit about the various um, genres and iterations of this, of okay. this character. Um, so probably like most people, when it comes to Yagnabalki, I became first intimately familiar with him in the Brihadaranyaka. Um, and that's where I became interested in well, where did he come from? Because he seems rather well fleshed out here. Um, there must be a, a backstory. Um, and so in that case, particularly the Shatapata Brahmana, that is the, the ritual technical manuals, um, he shows up a number of times, um, not in extended narratives. Um, there are a couple that are longer, but in most of the cases, it is side mentions of sorts, very important side mentions. Um, but not, not extended passages that give much of a context. But it does give us the background that, it, at least so I, I show in the book, that background from which the character of the Brihadaranyaka is drawn from and expanded upon. Um, following the Brihadaranyaka, Yagnavalkya appears in the Mahabharata and then in several different Puranas as well. And I should say, I use the term literary life um, in the title. I mean that more as, as an abstract noun rather than a singular um, trajectory of, of his literary history, because what we find in the epics and the Puranas um, is the story of Yagnabalkya going off in different directions but clearly stories that are, are directly informed by the earlier portrayals. And so this is where I use the term in the text of, of literary memory. That is for individuals who are composing about him who are not strictly um, confined to a, a canonical understanding, but are quite familiar with it. Um, and then how they recompose and recompose um, this individual in those contexts. For different so, ends. Yes. So uh, perhaps maybe, maybe I'll, I'll leave it up to you. You can maybe talk a little bit about the different ends that you lay out in, in, in your substantive chapters or um, otherwise in no particular order. You can talk about this, this, you know, this, um, this literary memory, you know, and, and, and this is a significant, you know, this is a significant aspect of, of the work to my mind, what you're arguing about literary memory. Yeah, well, one of the things with the Upanishads that I think is generally underappreciated, and I keep this in the context of, of Yagnabalki in the book, um, is that the stories of these texts that are often touted as secret and controlled, um, that are you know intimate discussions between a teacher and the student, at least in the traditional definition of, of what Upanishad means, um, these stories have a life of their own. They, the, the stories carry and the stories spread um, in a way more so than some of the doctrines of the Upanishads. And, and so we find these stories then going into um, 
different composer realms um, where the story world that is, is created around this figure is built upon um, and, and expanded in those contexts for different reasons. They, they, they will take parts of the story or parts of the character um, using them to their own end. So one of the things that I make a, a rather strong argument about is the use of sarcasm with the figure, um, how it is clearly seen in, in the Shatapata Brahmana, um, but how it develops across the text that seems to go directly in parallel to the rise of the white Yajurvedic tradition. Um, with Yagnavalkya then becoming that spokesperson for the tradition who can establish a new Veda amongst the old. Um, that trope, for example, of the new amongst the old, we find that of reoccurring in the Puranas um, in positioning um, new schools, new traditions uh, of yoga or no, new pilgrimage sites or Shiva or Rama or what have you. Um, and using Yagnavalkya in that context as an authority to reach back and to make something historically new, ancient, with a figure who is both new in his own right and in authorizing a new Veda, but also ancient because Vedas by definition then, um, when we look at the different stories of how the white Yajurveda came about, um, it's new only in the sense of Yagnavalkya as the founder. It's positioned in the deity Saraswati or talked about as eternal um, or a reformulation of the Veda that's already there. It's a number of different ways um, that this figure is, is used for those sorts of rhetorical moves. What would you most hope folks would take away from this book? Otherwise, put perhaps key takeaway, key argument of the work. Okay, so key arguments of the work, I would say that the literary and the historical can be fruitfully combined without, or let me rephrase that, the literary and the historical can be fruitfully combined, assuming a reflectivity of the strengths and weaknesses of each, um, that we can watch a tradition grow here in, in a really relatively small example of one figure who otherwise might seem enigmatic or might seem particular within the Brihadaranyaka, that there is a longer um, his, uh, literary life to this figure that, that helps explain his, his importance in the tradition up to and including today. Um, that texts that might otherwise be characterized as philosophic, philosophical or esoteric or secretive um, also contains other types of material and that narratives within those texts um, can be can be studied in, in a new and interesting fashion. Um, in particular, my interest here is, is how can we look at different stories and think about how different communities valued aspects of a character or a story structure in their reuse of them and in their recomposition of them um, and not fall back on dismissive or reductionist characteriz characterizations of, oh, this must be false or, oh, this must be mythic um, and so on, which has been quite common with a figure uh, of Yagnabalkia. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, you know, I... Uh, clearly, I love all the books that I read for the podcast, but the vast majority of them, while within the field of Hindu studies, will be well beyond my particular subfield. But, you know, I, I found this uh, quite rich as, as a lover and scholar of Sanskrit narrative. Uh, and, you know, I recently went to the Dubrovnik International Conference for the Epics and Puranas, and 
Um, and really I had in mind to really play with some ideas and flesh out a journal article that sort of a more methodology article to talk about the interplay between diachronic and synchronic perspectives, the fruitful interplay thereof. Um, and that was sort of in the back of my brain before I uh, took a close look at your book for the podcast. And I'm like, nope, I'm going to be citing this as an example <laughs> of, of how to successfully navigate to, I mean, it, it's sort of, a, you have to strike a balance because the literary and, his, and historical, they can't, you can't, they can't trespass on each other's domain, but they right. can cooperate. You can find a way for having them cooperate. And, um, and yeah, so I find the, the very stance to, to my mind, at least for my interests, the very stance of the method is a huge contribution in addition to what you find out about the sage. Right. And, and I'm glad you, you picked up on that because one, one of my, my, my strong interests in, in, in the approach in this text is how can we look at the diachronic and synchronic, not as opposed to each other, um, but complementary in a useful tension or in conversation with each other, um, or as you said, of, of balancing the interests and needs. And they, they, don't perfectly overlap. I don't think they can perfectly overlap because you have you have different goals and strategies in each. But if you keep both in mind and think about how they can reflect and illuminate the other while simultaneously doing their own thing, um, it seems a useful way forward. Certainly more useful to my mind than historical dismissiveness of oh this must be mythic. We'll move on, um, or or things along those lines. Yeah, and ironically to my mind, I mean, I I, I live and I I I, I thrive in, in in the story world, and so um, I I quite um, you know to my mind the question of whether or not I mean it's an important question obviously as to whether or not there were um, historical you know uh, Vedic sacrificing forest dwellers, you know nevertheless the fact that this was crucial to the the Hindu imaginaire this tells us something about the peoples of the times authoring these works and what they considered important, irrespective of whether they were descriptive. And I think Absolutely. I mean, it, Absolutely. It's, it's ironically, it gives us deep access into an historical process, but you have to actually sidestep the question of whether this was historical, historically real. In a sense, right. Well, I think I think you put that nicely. Uh, it, it it gives us a window in his into historical process more so than it does into say historical fact. If you're ask, asking X or Y about you know an individual and their historicity, um, it's a different sort of question, though still historically oriented, uh, into the historical process of how different listening communities value to figure through the, their their recomposition. One thing that you mentioned in thinking about story worlds, um, which both me and you are are, are very much interested in, um, in thinking of this tension between the historical and the literal, um, is thinking of multiple story worlds depending on the hearing audience, um, or then eventually with writing the reading audience um, of what was historically likely the concerns at any particular point in time when a composition was made, um, entering into in, in a fashion that story world and trying to understand the concerns and motivations of that particular time versus say the story world centered around uh, a similar narrative and similar characters 500 years later. Um, and so I think it's important to, to think of story worlds always in the plural um, of whether it's our own in our own time versus 
um, at the time of a composition or during the process of, of transmission. Um, but I very much like your, your distinction there between the historical process versus positivistic historical fact. Mm. Um, let's see, a couple more, a couple more big picture questions for you. But, uh, you know, during the process of learning about, you know, the literary life of this, of this sage, what, um, what struck you, what stayed with you? Anything surprised you? Anything remarkable for you about this journey? Anything remarkable about the story? Oh, well, so many the journey, things. The journey of the, yeah. Um, the, I mean, the one thing that has always driven me um, in my interest uh, in the Upanishads more broadly, um, but then also in, in other aspects of religious life is I, there are forests and the trees folks, and I'd like to see myself as somewhere in between. Um, but the one thing I always find the, the most fascinating and surprising is going down the rabbit holes of looking at oddities or riddles or enigmas within texts. Um, because for me, that's a little bit like chum in the water. It's like, oh, this doesn't make sense. Give me a minute. I'll figure out how maybe it does. Um, and so I, whether that has to do with, say, the sarcasm of Yagnavalkya, where does this come from and how is it used, or down to smaller sorts of discussions like, why does Shakalya's head fall apart? Why is Maitreyi confused? What does it mean to have one and a half deities? That's an oddity in the enumeration of deities uh, of Yagnavalkya. And I always, in all of these cases, you know, the surprising revelation of sorts to me is, is ways in which these actually do make sense, um, ways in which um, I think there are interesting and new um, ways to look at these problems. I've always started with the methodological principle in reading a text that if something doesn't make sense in some fashion, whether it's an individual word or a passage or the framing or characterization or something like that, I've always started with the principle of, well, that's my fault. Um, that's not the fault of the text. Um, obviously, this has been preserved for however many thousands of years. It meant something. Um, and then the, the question is, okay, if I have a problem with it, how are the different means? How can we think about um, where it does make sense um, that may be more obvious or more salient to the story world of the particular individuals at the time and hearing it? <laughs> and so it's it's those rabbit holes and those those answers that I that I often come up with. Not always. Sometimes confusions remain, of course. Um, that I always find most surprising and satisfying. As far as the literary life of Yagnavalkya goes, um, one of the most surprising to me was in, into the Puranas of how the Puranas try to reconcile this sarcasm with an individual um, as an ancient sage who's supposed to be revered, but somehow broke away um, from his teacher. And how can you have a new Veda when Vedas by definition aren't new? Um, and and the creativity in the stories to explain how that can come about. Um, and they're not um, they're not singular. They're, they're, there's multiple different voices coming up with different answers um, for how that is possible. Yagnavalkya was misunderstood. Yagnavalkya insulted someone intentionally. Yagnavalkya is arrogant. Um, or in one particular Puranic passage, no, no, Yagnavalkya is 
not arrogant at all, it's everyone else. So we transpose the characterological traits um, that are being read as, as negative in that context onto others. Um, that to me is was surprising. And I think it's entirely understandable in a number of ways, um, but but quite satisfying in, in the creativity uh, in, in coming across those. Well, I mean, it's 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 fascinating at least, and and I, th- I think to 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 oddballs like you and I laugh out loud funny to actually come across these passages at times where, you know, not just his sarcasm, but you know, there seems to be this um this at times distaste for a salty sage, you know, what do you do with the salty sage? Like, what do you do, what with, do, you do with the salty sage? Right. That you, so in the later literature, you get that, that sort of, you know, Oh, this, you know, how do we reconcile this individual? The irony of that is the earliest Yagnavalki where we have a salty sage, he's unique for being, um, salty and sarcastic. <laughs> it, it was a feature. We don't have that amongst right? other Upanishadic figures. His saltiness was a feature at the outset, but then it became a right. bug in the chronic Right, right. It becomes a bug <laughs> at the end. That's true. That's, that's true. And, <laughs> and that's, and I think that parallels his rise in importance. Um, and once, once he is fully established as an iconic sage uh, of, of the white Yajurveda, um, then it becomes an issue of, well, these uh, these character traits, which served for establishing the white Yajurveda, become a liability. Um, not one that can be entirely ignored. Um, so you get, you know, transposing of character character traits onto others. You get various sorts of rationales of, no, no, he wasn't being sarcastic. He was misunderstood. Um, or he was being sarcastic and he had to, to undergo penance. Um, for it because you shouldn't insult your teacher. So various ways of, of reconciling um, that difficulty. Uh, it's it's utterly fascinating because on the one hand, you know, you know, the idiom of of the Upanishads before they're sort of legitimized and folds in, and it's it's the idiom of of, of it, it, it's it's sort of a they're revolutionary religious ideas. It's a time of debate and and, and dispute and and you know. Um, and, and sort of advancing various schools of thought versus the idiom of the Puranas. It's the, the, the populist idiom of bhakti and devotionalism and piety. Right, right. Uh, a different kind of piety, I suppose. And so it's uh, it's utterly fascinating to see him operate in these different ecosystems. Right. And yet... Um, and yet it's not the same him. He's he's recreated in these different ecosystems. He adapts. He's, you know, he evolves. And it's 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 really a fascinating study. I have in the back of my brain, I may do it, I may not. There's too many books in the back of my brain called Mapping Markandeya to do something okay. similar with, with the sage Markandeya. Yeah, point. exactly. Exactly. But, um, but I think we're missing some some key texts and associations of Markandeya and the Saura, the sort of sun worship uh, traditions. Because I mean, there's a lot of hints here and there, but I can't quite piece it together. But that's a story for another day. More important for our time at hand is, who is this book for? Who, who would most benefit from this book, would you say? First and foremost, um, any student or teacher of Hinduism. I mean, Yagnavalgya is one of these figures he repeatedly comes up. Um, anyone who teaches introduction to Hinduism or takes a Hinduism course will come across him. Um, so that would be um, first and foremost, um, whether undergraduate or, or probably especially graduate level. Undergraduate level, um, there are parts of it that I think could be incredibly useful. Um, maybe not the whole book, um, particularly the Brahmana section um, is, is more for specialists, but the rest would. So students and scholars of Hinduism, first and foremost, students and scholars of, of, of Sanskrit literature, 
um, whether um, explicitly um, religious or not. Um, students and scholars and potentially the general public with interest in mythology. Um, one of the things that, that's nice about the, I think about studying Yagnabalke here is we can look at a long trajectory. Um, and you mentioned Mark and Dea and, and having some difficulties of, of some of the earliest material, where does something come from? With Yagnabalke, and this is particular to the white Yajurvedic Shaka and the way that the texts were produced, we do, we are able to, to lay out a, a pretty straightforward relative chronology of the development of the story. Um, yes, of course, there are gaps because there are always gaps, um, but it is a, a, a coherent larger narrative about a figure in the narratives that he's in. Um, so Hinduism, mythology, um, Sanskrit literature, South Asian studies more broadly, I, th I think a number of people would find um, a benefit or interest within. So I'll close just with this. Thank you very much for appearing on the podcast today. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. For those listening, we, of course, have been speaking with Stephen Linquist on a brand new fascinating Sunni publication um, on the literary life of Yagyavalkya. Um until next time, keep listening, keep reading, and keep contemplating literary characters and maybe even the complementarity of diachronic and synchronic perspectives. Take care.